dear friends, God is asking you and me today, how long will you grieve over that place in your past that's clinging to you and not allowing you to move forward for God's glory? How long are you going to continue to live in your past? This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Have you ever wondered how to move on from your past? If you're like me, we tend to find ourselves in a place of longing to move on, but unable to let go of our past. On this Moments of Hope broadcast, Pastor David Chadwick unpacks strategies for keeping our past in our past. There was a woman and she was aging, becoming increasingly blind, and uh, her three sons wanted to do something special for her because she was a really great mom. So the first son bought her a beautiful new home, expansive, you know, lots of square footage, and he gave it to her because of his love for her. The second son wanted to buy her a really neat car, so he bought her a Lamborghini. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars, gave it to her and said, here, mom, how much I love you. The third son, knowing that she was blind and even her hearing was getting a little bad, wanted to make sure she constantly heard God's word. So he bought for her a parrot, and this parrot could recite the scripture word for word from Genesis through Revelation. So all three gifts were given to her. She called her three sons by her side and said, I want to thank each of you for loving me so dearly. To the first son, she said, I appreciate the house so much, but you know, I'm going blind and I can't really see the house that well, but thank you so much for thinking of me. She turned to the second son and said, thank you for that car. It must be amazing. I can hardly see it. I certainly can't drive it, but thank you so much for spending all that money on me and giving me that car. And to the third son, she said, and that bird you sent me. Good heavens, thank you so much. It was delicious. <laughs> thank you, Ruthie. You find her friend. Okay, thank you. If Ruthie likes it, it must be a good joke. Okay. Today, I want to talk to you that your past is past. Your past is past. Say it with me. My past is past. It's gone. It is forever in the rearview mirror. I want to teach you today about the importance of feeding your future, feeding your purpose, and not feeding your past. Now, all of us have physical bodies, and we know that to keep these bodies healthy, we need to feed them mostly good food, right? And if we feed our bodies mostly bad food, eventually they'll become unhealthy. Dear friends, if you feed your spirit negative, bitter, unthankful, graciouslessness feelings, that's eventually who you'll become. Your spirit will become unhealthy. You'll not be a totally devoted follower of Jesus. But if you feed your spirit good things like grace, mercy, kindness, hope, compassion, all of those good things, your spirit will become healthier. And God knows that's true in the spiritual life and the physical life. Today, I want to address mostly what's happened to us in our past and how our past needs to be our past. It needs to be behind us. You don't drive your car constantly looking in the rearview mirror, do you? Well, of course not. If you do so, you'll most likely have an accident. You drive your car occasionally glancing in the rearview mirror, but mostly looking at the horizon so that you can see what's ahead of you in order to arrive at the destination that God has for you. Similarly, we need to drive our life's cars in the ways that God wants us to drive them. Uh, my mama said this, 
don't cry over. Did my mama know your mama? <laughs> yeah, it seems like there were these euphemisms as we were growing up that all good mamas knew. Don't cry over spilt milk. There's just not a thing you can do once the milk is spilt. All you can do is clean it up and move forward. That's what God wants all of us to do today. So remember, don't feed your past, but feed your new purpose. And that's what God wants us all to do. Now, there is an example of this in the Bible from a guy by the name of Samuel. And in case you don't know the story of Samuel, let me give you this example now. If you look at the biblical timeline, which is what I'm going to be teaching in our Tuesday night class at Hope University, I'm going to try to give you the story of the Bible and its unity and how it all fits together. Well, if you understand the Bible, you know that Joshua died and he did not raise up a mentor to follow him. What followed Joshua were the judges, and there were 13 judges all together. Israel would constantly fall into a moral abyss. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge. The judge would deliver them. Then over time period, they would fall back into that moral abyss over and over again. Well, the last judge of Israel was Samuel. Samuel was a good and godly man. He was a child conceived in infertility. His mama was named Hannah. Hannah wanted a baby so much. She cried out to God continually, give me a child, and had to wait a long time for that child to come. Again, let me remind those of you who are caught in infertility that the babies that are conceived after long periods of infertility and having to wait, they're oftentimes the mightiest and greatest children in the eyes of God. So don't give up if you're in that position. God may be using that as a time of deep prayer for you. Well, Hannah finally said to the Lord, if you give me a son, I'll dedicate him to the Lord for all of his life. And sure enough, miraculously, supernaturally, God gave Hannah a son. And again, his name was Samuel. He was dedicated in the temple, raised by Eli, the high priest. And again, he was a mighty man of God. There came a point, though, where Israel became tired of Samuel as a judge, as great and mighty a judge as he was. And they wanted a king. Interestingly, before judges ever happened in the law, in the book of Deuteronomy, God prophesied that there would be a time when Israel would want a king. But God didn't want Israel to have a king. Why? God wanted to be their king. He wanted them to look to him for their sufficiency. But they started looking at the other nations around them, and they wanted a king as well. I guess it's peer pressure on a national level. And sure enough, the people came to Samuel, the last judge, and they said, we want a king. Samuel was devastated because he thought he'd been a really good judge, faithful in every way. He cried out to God and asked, why? And God responded to him, Samuel, don't be discouraged. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. That really was what was going on. They were rejecting God's rulership over Samuel and the nation of Israel. Well, God practiced what I affectionately call Burger King theology, which is have it your way. If you persist in a way that is ungodly, God will give you what you want. He'll say to you, have it your way. If you want to go down that path of godlessness, he'll let you do so. And he let Israel have a king. And God told Samuel where that king was. His name was Saul. And he went and found him. Saul was hanging out in the baggage. He'd heard that maybe he was going to be king. He didn't want to be king, which is a great sign of humility, a good thing. 
He was tall and attractive, had a lot of natural gifts, but interestingly, he was humble originally. But folks, though Saul started out well as a good king in Israel, he didn't finish well. He was much like Solomon, who started well asking God for wisdom, had wisdom, but didn't finish well, ultimately fell prey to the godlessness of the world. Well, interestingly, thereafter, uh, Saul became king and did start out well, although there came a time when folks his call was not commensurate with his character. It can happen to any person in this room where the call of God eventually is not commensurate with the character. Saul began to be very prideful. In fact, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 15, he even built a statue to himself. Can you believe that? He was king for just a short time, had had great success. God had blessed him, and he built a statue to himself. Then God commanded Saul to go to war against the Amalekites. They were a godless, reprobate group of people who had attacked Israel coming out of Egypt and going toward the promised land in all kinds of fanatical, evil ways. And this was God's retribution against the Amalekites. He was using the Israelites as his instrument of judgment against the Amalekites. And God's clear instruction was completely eliminate all of the Malachites, don't leave anything alive. Now, I'll have to talk to you in another time, and I will so in my Tuesday night teaching on why God gives the laws of extermination. Uh, they have a purpose in eliminating evil and threats to Israel's existence because if Israel dies, Jesus doesn't come into the world and we're not saved of our sins. That was very important to God. Saul did not listen to God and allowed many of the sheep to live. And Samuel confronts him and says, why did you disobey God? And Saul said, I didn't disobey him. And Samuel says, um, do you hear the sheep bleeding? That's proof you didn't obey God. And oftentimes we need to understand that verse in 1 Samuel 15 where it says rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. If you rebel against God's moral laws, you are inviting the demonic world to control your life. Dear friends, you don't break the laws of God. The laws of God break you. God's moral law is given to us to protect us on how to live the right parameters on life's highways. And when we exclude those laws from our lives and break through them, we will go over the edge. God wants us to live a certain way because he loves us and cares for us. Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. Saul had an evil spirit that came over him and he went down the tubes fast. Well, when Saul ultimately was degraded, Samuel again is discouraged, just like he was when they wanted a king instead of him. And he starts grieving. And the grief lasts, not days, probably weeks, maybe even months, until finally God comes to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, and says these words. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Dear friends, God is asking you and me today, how long will you grieve over that place in your past that's clinging to you and not allowing you to move forward for God's glory? How long are you going to continue to live in your past? Your past is past, let it go. Saul has been rejected by me. Fill your horn with oil and Go, just go, because God has another plan for you, not living in your past, but a future and a hope. By the way, the horn is always a symbol biblically of power. A rhinoceros has on its nose what? A long horn. You want to wrestle with a rhinoceros? 
Of course not because of the horn. It's a symbol of power. Oil in the Bible is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So what God's saying here is now leave with a symbol of my power, leave with a symbol of my presence, and go. And I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I've got another king. It's not Saul. I've got a better king. His name's David. He's a man after my own heart. Folks, God's saying to you today, quit living in your past. Quit living with the kingship of Saul. The past is past. Let it go. Now move toward this new king, David, that I've chosen for you, a person after my own heart. I've got a great plan for your life, but if you stay stuck with Saul, you'll never appreciate King David in your life. Would you give God glory for that? So Samuel goes to Bethlehem, and there he meets Jesse, and Jesse has all of his sons in front of him. Samuel's got his horn filled with oil, his instrument for anointing this new king, and God says to Samuel, the new king isn't here. Well, the first one that Jesse presents is his oldest son, big, tall, handsome, strong, And God whispers to Samuel, no, not him. He saw part two. He saw the sequel. (laughs) We don't want him. And so none of the rest were chosen by God. And Samuel finally asked the question, is there someone else? And his dad said, well, yeah, there's the youngest in my family. That word in the Hebrew for youngest is hakatan. Say it with me. Now you know a little Hebrew, okay? Hakatan means the youngest. It can also be translated the runt. David was probably the shortest, the one who didn't look like the other brothers, the one that would be most likely chosen as king. And God whispers to Samuel and says, David's the one. Go get him. So they bring him from the fields into the room, and Samuel takes the horn and the oil and anoints him as king over Israel. Now, what's interesting is he didn't actually become king for seven more years. He had to fight Goliath and continue to do some things with Saul, etc. He had seven more years before he was king. Dear friends, are you in God's waiting room right now? Has God's promised you something and you're just waiting and one year's passed, two years passed? Seven years passed. Well, if that's where you are, you're in good company with King David. But he was finally anointed to be the king over Israel. And the truth again is, God asked Samuel and he asked you and me, how long are you going to live in the memory of Saul? When will you move forward to the new future, the new hope, the new king, King David, that I have for you? Your past is past, folks. You can't drive your life's car looking in the rearview mirror. You must put it behind you and move forward for God's glory. So then the question comes, well, well, how do I handle then my past so I can move forward to the King David that God has for me? I'm so glad you asked. Let me give you four ideas that my daddy gave me, uh, my good coaches gave me, that every positive life mentor I've had has given me. Here are four truths all of you can remember to move past your past and into the future that God has for you. First of all, how to handle your past? Admit it. Own it. However you screwed up, however you messed up, own it. Just admit it. Look at this verse from Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28. 
Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain what, folks? Aren't you glad for mercy as a part of our Christian faith? Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. I'm so glad I don't get what I deserve, aren't you? If we got what we deserve, we deserve hell. So when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. That's what the cross is all about. Admitting it's just confessing your sins and receiving the grace of Jesus, the mercy and kindness of God the Father, who forgives us on that cross of all of our sins. They're all poured out on him. But the key is we've got to admit it. We've got to confess it. That is the actual necessary first and important step. Admit it. Alcoholics Anonymous. My college basketball coach used to say all the time that he thought AA more reflects the heart of God the way the church should be than any other organization. You know, people in a circle confessing their sins to one another and each extending as common sinners, as common alcoholics, grace and mercy to one another. And that's what we should do as the body of Christ as we confess our sins to one another. What's so interesting is AA people will tell you that admitting the feelings, the beginning of healing. Admitting the feeling is the beginning of healing. Say it with me. Admitting the feeling is the beginning of healing. When you admit it, then you're saying, I'm powerless over this problem. Every person in AA will tell you they've had to go to the bottom and discover they're powerless against the sin of alcoholism, which is controlling their lives. But they'll never move toward health and wholeness until they admit it. It is the first and necessary step in getting past your past. The second one is admit it, then quit it. Quit it. Um, Look at this verse from Acts 3. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Once you go to the cross and you know your sins are forgiven, there's something that naturally follows. It's called repentance. Repentance. The best definition of repentance I've ever heard is stop it. Stop that destructive behavior that's killing you. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio in a conversation about the power of imitating Jesus. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tony Marciano, President and CEO of Charlotte Rescue Mission. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when you stand at the intersection of homelessness and addiction? Let me put you in that person's shoes for just a second. What is it that you really need? You've probably been one of the individuals who stood at the end of the interstate ramp, holding a sign that said, hungry, will work for food. But you never used the money for food. You bought booze and drugs with it. And most likely, you hate your life. Your addiction has stolen every aspect of hope. You want to be part of the fabric of society, but every morning your addiction screams and you surrender to it. There is one thing you do need, and that is transformation. The place to go is Charlotte Rescue Mission. Charlotte Rescue Mission works from the inside out to address the root cause of someone at the crossroads of addiction and homelessness. The Rescue Mission provides free, Christian, residential, high-quality substance abuse recovery programs to members of our community who otherwise would not be able to afford such services. With a passion for holistic transformation and a love for Christ, the mission's 120-day program has transformed the lives of thousands of men and women in our community. 
Charlotte Rescue Mission is grateful for the financial partnership of Moments of Hope Church. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Jen. It's always a pleasure. In today's e-devotion, you challenged us all with the Apostle Paul's words, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. From 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, a very powerful adjuration to all Christ followers especially because so many whom I experience as Christians say, oh, I can't be perfect. You know, I can't ever live up to what Jesus wants me to be. And Jen, I think we need to realize that when we have the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts, we have in Romans eight twenty nine language, we are conformed to the image of Jesus, that this power of the Holy Spirit more and more daily, monthly, yearly, makes us look, live, and act like Jesus himself. So we keep forgetting that our examples as Christ followers have a huge way of saying to people, Jesus is Lord, and you can follow him, and he can change your life as well. I just don't want to give people such an easy pass to say, Mm -hmm. well, I'm just not perfect. I can't live that way. For the Apostle Paul said, Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Now, what a word for moms and dads Mm. to be able to say to their kids, you imitate me because I'm trying to imitate Jesus. Mm. What a way to influence your workplace as people know you're Christians and they see the way you live and you're saying to them without even speaking a word, imitate me as I'm imitating my Jesus. I just think there's more power available to us than we're easily able to recognize. I completely agree. I love how you brought that Romans eight verse into us. And this can only happen when we abide in Christ. Yeah, that's a great word. It means to remain, to rest, to be connected to, to be unionized, as one theologian described it. Our life is totally in him, and his life is totally in us. Now, if God is the potter, and we are the clay, that means he is molding us into his desired image every single day. We've just got to let him do what he wants to do. And I really believe as Jesus lives in us, he not only lives in us, in us, he lives through us, and we can follow Jesus successfully. That's what Jesus said to his early disciples, come and follow me, live as I live. It's called peripatetic teaching. What that means is you influence people less by what you say, but more by how you live. And Jesus said, follow me, and as you watch what I do, start doing that as well. You have the example of Jesus' power being associated with his prayer life by his disciples, and so they went to him, and the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them how to do was to pray. Well, how did they arrive at that conclusion? They watched him pray, and so I think the same thing can happen happen with us as well. As we imitate Jesus, people won't imitate us because we're following him so faithfully. That is so good. I love that you brought out that example because that's exactly what I was thinking. Jesus removed himself from the people to connect with the Father, to to get his marching orders for what to do next. And are we doing that? Exactly. And in that time with the Father, 
he filled Jesus up with power, and that was the source of his prayer, to heal, cast out demons, and to live successfully in every way for the glory of the Father. So powerful. Thank you so much, David. And everyone, if you'd like to receive these daily e-blasts from me, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there. They will arrive in your inbox every morning at 7 a.m. from my heart to yours to give you a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We would love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School, located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also, check out David's Hopecast. They're both free and available at momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston, hoping you have a great weekend.